You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I'm old enough to remember when the popular press painted philosophy professors as peddlers of postmodernism, heedless of truth and its value, and dedicated only to displays of cleverness at the expense of real knowledge. Then, as sometimes happens in wars and culture wars, alliances shifted and new powers arose. Now a new and pervasive post-truth era has descended on us, not from the ivory tower, but from the radio tower, followed by cable news, then to the web and social media, and eventually from the White House itself. And a good question to pose at this point might be, what should we do about this? Doctors Stephen Nadler and Lawrence Shapiro, a pair of philosophy professors, proposed some answers in their new book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. Both Steve and Larry had planned to chat with me, but the latest Greek letter variant of COVID has kept Steve from joining us today. Steve, we wish you a speedy recovery. Larry, thank you for joining us here on Christian Humanist Profiles. I'm really happy to join you. Thanks for having me. Well, Larry, one of the book's early claims uh, that should frame the rest of our discussion is that bad thinking, as you distinguish bad thinking from other kinds of cogitation, stands as a blameworthy moral defect not something that stands distinct from or separate from the moral life. Uh, What marks morally defective bad thinking as distinct from other related phenomena? And why is that claim to moral weight important to your project? That's that's a great question, Nathan. Thanks. There's certainly a, a moral component to bad thinking because bad thinking can lead to bad decisions, which can lead to uh, harmful behavior. The, the, one of the original uh, philosophers uh, who, who made this sort of observation uh, what, what was actually a, a mathemat- mathematician as, as well. And <laughs> this is embarrassing, but I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Um, but Pythagoras, he, Pascal. No, 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 no. Um, no, no none of the P guys. <laughs> None of, none of the P guys, uh, Jesus. Well, anyway, let me tell you the story that, that he tells. Yeah, that's he, fine. He, he, he tells the story of uh, a ship owner who fails or fails to accumulate evidence about the seaworthiness of his ship, or perhaps he has evidence that it's not, it's not seaworthy after all, but he ignores this evidence. Uh, he fails to justify the belief that his, his ship is actually seaworthy and he sells tickets to passengers and, and uh, the ship departs and of course it, it sinks. And the claim that this, uh, this philosopher makes is that such a decision that leads to the drowning of uh, the, the passengers on the ship is of course, morally blameworthy. He's done something terrible in ignoring the evidence. So that's, I think, a very clear case of of how it is that a failure to justify belief can lead to decisions that lead to actions that end up harming people. And so that's just an obvious case of why bad thinking has a moral component to it. Very good. Uh, And and if 
Uh, oh, Clifford. Okay, very good, very good. I, 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 as you were talking, I, I was frantically paging through your book as well, looking for the name of that philosopher. Because once you started the story, I said, oh, I've read this. I've read this. Yeah. <laughs> um, very good, very good. Well, another distinction that your introduction presents is one between reason and desire. Now, it's interesting because later on in the book, you do cite David Hume. And David Hume is a figure who's or at least one of whose central points uh, is that, you know, reason, depending on, you know, which of his uh, treatises you're reading is or should be uh, the slave of the passions. So in your book, you invert that. You say that uh, passions are inevitable, but reason should govern them. And of course, there are other philosophers who would agree with you there. Um, Since you you cite Hume, uh, you know, why are we inverting him in this book? Well, well, Hume's point was a point about whether reasons themselves can, can motivate. So you could have, Hume thought, all the reasons in the world to take a particular action. But unless you desire the outcome of the action, those reasons themselves are, are not sufficient to move you. So I might have all the reasons in the world to, say, wear a, a mask on an airplane or, or take a, a, a COVID uh, vaccination, but without a, a desire to protect myself or to protect others, I'm not going to be moved by these reasons to take, take the appropriate action. Now, what, what Steve and I are interested in is uh, showing the importance of basing the sorts of desires you have that will lead your to your decisions and to your actions on a proper groundwork of, of reason. So I don't think we're actually disagreeing with Hume. When Hume said that reasons are the slave of the passions, he just meant that without, re- without desires to motivate you to act, reasons are, um, are, are, are toothless. So, you know, to what extent would you say then that your project overlaps with something like what we read in Plato's dialogues, where the reason uh, in some sense governs and directs those passions? Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're, as you know, uh, big fans of Socrates. Uh, Socrates, as, as probably your listeners know, was this uh, historical figure who himself never wrote anything, but Plato, his student, would would engage and observe Socrates and, and write down uh, many of the, the um, principles and positions that Socrates argued for. And, and Socrates urged uh, his fellow Athenians to live the examined life. And this would be a life where you reflect deeply on the kinds of moral principles that you should allow uh, to govern your decisions and your actions. So we're, we're big fans of Plato uh, and, and Socrates, and we do agree with, with Plato and Socrates that, that the examined life, the life in which you reflect deeply on the kinds of principles that you think should be motivating your behavior uh, and leading to your actions is, is the life that we should be aspiring toward. Very good. I want, I want to pose one more kind of a big picture uh, uh, framing question before we get into the particular questions on logic, and that is, uh, throughout the introduction in the first chapter, you use evidence as a noun repeatedly, and it mm-hmm. takes on the form of kind of an ultimate term, to borrow from uh, you know, the rhetoric scholar Kenneth Burke. Um, okay. 
Now, when parties disagree on what counts as evidence, um, who or what gets to serve as the umpire behind the epistemological home plate? Uh, ultimately, we have to appeal to experts. And of course, this gets tricky because you get people uh, who say deny the efficacy of vaccines, claiming that they have experts on their side. But uh, in, in, in fact, they don't. Uh, the sorts of experts that I, I think we should be trusting are, are the people who are, say, publishing in referee journals. Uh, people who have a track record of giving uh, a fair assessment of, of the data. So there, there could be disagreements about who counts as experts, but I think these disagreements aren't uh, of the sort where we should just agree to disagree. There, there are facts of the matter about who should be trusted and, and who should not be. All right, to follow up on that a little bit, I mean, you know, one of the, well, I was about to say one of the premises in your logic chapter, but that would be an unintentional pun. Uh, but <laughs> one of the, uh, no, I'm going to have to use it. <laughs> one of the things upon which logic is predicated uh, is uh -huh. that uh, the premises have some kind of uh, truth value. So, mm -hmm. I mean, in That's your right. view, I mean, when we're talking about contingent things like the existence of dragons, Barack Obama's birth in the United States, the orbit of the earth around the sun. I mean, things that you use exa as examples in this book. I mean, should we treat them as simply in fact true or should we treat them as likely enough that it's irresponsible to give too much weight to their, to the possibility that they're not true? What, what is the truth value of the things like the efficacy of vaccines and things like that that you use in examples here? Uh, that, that's a good question. It's a question about, it's really a, a question that gets us into some philosophy of science. But uh, if, if we're dealing with a statement like Barack Obama was born in the United States or uh, the uh, earth orbits the sun rather than the other way around, we might insist that because these are uh, statements of an empirical nature, that's to say that we evaluate their, their truth on the basis of, of how the world is and how we, uh, and as a result of, uh, a result of it being a, a, a question about how the world is, we have to collect evidence. And when you collect evidence and evaluate evidence, there's always a chance that, that you're wrong, uh, which is why philosophers of science often say that science is not interested in, in proving things. It's interested in increasing uh, the amount of justification we have something to the point where it would simply be unreasonable to deny a sort of claim. So my, my response to you is that we may never uh, we never we may never be able to say that we can prove that the Earth orbits the sun rather than the other way around, or that we can prove that. Barack Obama was born in the United States, but we now have available so much evidence in favor of these beliefs that it would be foolhardy to deny them. Very good, very good. We'll probably come back to that, but I want to get into your logic chapters. So chapter two was familiar territory for me. Um, some mm -hmm. version of deductive argument 
uh, appears both when I teach freshman composition and when I teach intro to philosophy. I teach at a small college. I get around. Uh, uh -huh. When I justify the work that my students do on deductive logical structures, when they say, why is it that we have to do this? Usually I tell them that, you know, what we're doing when we do that deductive reasoning is roughly analogous to the justification that a coach would give for making athletes run for miles in practice when they never oh, traverse good. more than a court's length in a game situation. So they're right. developing and strengthening certain things. But what I think that I detected in the second chapter is a presentation of these deductive exercises as more directly applicable to public life, something that mirrors something that we actually engage in the world. If I'm reading you wrong, what is your case for teaching and learning formal logic? And if I'm reading you right, where do disjunctive syllogisms actually show up in the wild? Well, disjunctive syllogisms show up so frequently that we uh, fail to recognize that we're, we're even relying on them. So an example of a disjunctive syllogism might be something as easy as, uh, uh, I, I, I know I have the, the peanut butter somewhere in the kitchen. Uh, it's, it's not in this cupboard uh, and it's in one of these two cupboards. So it must be in the other cupboard. That's, that's an example of deductive reasoning in the wild as it were. Uh, and it's so commonplace that we, we, we don't even recognize when, when we do it. But uh, I, I, I like your analogy of, of the coach. Uh, the more practice you get in uh, recognizing valid forms of deductive arguments, uh, the better you are at uh, distinguishing between those forms of deductive arguments and, and the invalid forms or the, the forms of argument that, that pose as deductive when in fact they're, they're not. Uh, the most common sort of fallacy would be the one in which uh, someone presents you with a claim like, uh, if, uh, if, uh, if it's raining today, then uh, I should be carrying an umbrella. I'm carrying an umbrella, so it must be raining today. That's uh, a fallacious form of argument. And you hear this kind of fallacy frequently. And to understand the rules of deductive logic is to prepare you to identify when a conclusion actually follows from premises and, and when in fact it does not. Right, right. Or I mean, to, to take it in a more political direction, uh, you know, when a police officer responds to a legitimate violent threat, uh, you know, a forcible response often results there was a forcible response in this case, so there must have been a legitimate violent threat. Yeah, that's a great example, Nathan. Yeah, I mean that that that's the one that uh, I uh, that that does get my uh, dry erase marker out of my pocket and I start charting it on the board. So I <laughs> yeah, I, or, I, I, I guess well when I was reading the book, I thought none of these things actually happen in real life, but now that you said that, yeah, they kind of do. They kind of do. Yeah, well, right or sure. <laughs> take to take another take another example if. If there is election fraud, then then Trump will have lost the election, and Trump lost the election, so there must have been election fraud. Yep, that's, there you go. That's there you that's go. a fallacy. Yep, yep. Well, I want you to talk about another term because uh, inductive and deductive reasoning, a lot of folks are pretty familiar with, but uh, for people who haven't had their intro to philosophy classes for a few years, uh, talk a little bit about abductive reasoning and why it's only tangentially related to kidnapping. <laughs> Um, so abduction is a, a fancy label for a form of inference that's uh, 
we've got this other label that's kind of more explanatory uh, called inference to the best explanation. Inference to the best explanation is, is unlike deductive reasoning uh, in, in, in the sense that with deductive reasoning, that the premises lead you to a conclusion that's guaranteed to be true. If you've reasoned correctly in a deductive manner, and if your premises are true, your conclusion is inevitable. It, it must be true. Inference to the best explanation doesn't give you that kind of guarantee, but it's in fact the kind of reasoning that we see used more commonly. It's the kind of, kind of reasoning that's the bedrock of scientific reasoning. Uh, a great example of abduction or, or inference to the best explanation appears in Sherlock Holmes novels, uh, or if you're old enough to remember Columbo, police detectives are always engaged in inference to the best explanation because what they do is they, they look at a bunch of evidence and they use this evidence to try to identify who the, the criminal was. And they do this by thinking about, say, the footprints found on the murder scene, the ballistics of the bullet, uh, the motives of various suspects. And they infer from all these facts who the most likely uh, criminal is, who the most, most likely culprit is. Now, it could be that despite all this evidence that they've collected, which they then, uh, on the basis of which they infer, who they say murderer is, it could be that they're wrong and someone else was in fact a murderer. But once you collect enough evidence, it narrows down the cast of suspects until there's one suspect left who's the overwhelming likely uh, criminal. So we use inductive, we use this inference, the best explanation really all the time. If, if you wanna know say what the cause of the disease is, you look at the symptoms and you rule out some diseases because some diseases might not be causing the, the, uh, the, pox, the, the red pox or the, or the fever and other diseases will. And ultimately we choose among the various diseases, the best option left once we've looked at all the evidence, the symptoms. So let me ask you this, and, and this is kind of tying together so some previous questions. I mean, the way that I imagine uh, practice in deductive argument structures uh, is that it helps us to sharpen our ability to make uh, abductive arguments in the real world. I mean, is that, is that a valid relationship between the two, or am I missing some more important distinctions between the two? Uh, I, I think the most important distinctions between the two are, are that as I said previously, inference to the best explanation never guarantees that your conclusion is correct. So imagine that you've got a wealth of evidence pointing to, uh, to uh, Jack as the murderer, but it, it could be that someone, uh, John, is in fact framing Jack. And inference to the best explanation might lead you the conclusion that Jack is the murderer when in fact it, it was John because John made it look as if Jack were the murderer. With deductive reasoning, if the premises are true, then there's no, there's no risk of being incorrect about the conclusion. 
Very good. Very good. It's funny you mentioned Columbo. I've, I've been accused by a few listeners of uh, having a Columbo interview style. I'll, I'll let the author <laughs> go on for a while and then I'll say, now, wait just a minute. There's one thing I'm not <laughs> understanding here. So I, that's a warning for later in the interview. If I, if I start right. to do that, that's a well-established tendency on my part. <laughs> and, and do you do you wear a trench coat and smoke a cigar? I wish I were that cool, but no, I <laughs> I, I dress more like a, a conventional Christian college English professor. I fear. <laughs> okay. Well, Larry, uh, your discussion of the blue cab thought experiment is an interesting uh, yes. one, and, and it's not one that I encountered in force before. So, for those of us who watch, you know, The Wire. And we think that eyeball witnesses are the stuff of justifying belief when it comes to the contingent events that have already come to pass. What problems arise when one starts to calculate the relative reliability of witness accounts? Tell us about that blue cab thought experiment. Uh, uh, okay, the, the idea is this. We, we, we'll talk about cabs and then we can shift to more uh, pertinent topics. But, but the idea is this. If, uh, if you have a witness uh, with a, a, a valuable degree of reliability, you know, say your, your witness is, is 80% reliable. And by this, you mean that when they make a report about something, then um, that report will be right eight times out of 10. Let's just put it that way. Which means that two times out of 10, that, that report will be wrong. And you might just rely on this sense of reliability and, and forget about other sorts of things and say, you know, if the, if the person reports seeing a car accident involving a, a blue cab and the uh, re witness is 80% reliable, then there's an 80% chance that uh, was actually a blue cab that, that caused, that was involved in the accident. But what this reasoning fails to appreciate is, is something known as, as the base rate, which is the rate of, in this case, cabs in the community that are actually blue. If there's only one blue cab and all the rest are green or yellow, then the chance that a blue cab was involved in an accident is initially very small because there's hardly any blue cabs around to be involved in an accident. And if a cab was involved in the accident, it's much more likely that it was one of the other cabs. And so you have to take into consideration these facts about the frequency of, of cabs of different color when you're asking yourself whether you should trust this witness who is 80% reliable. Uh, so it could turn out that a witness who is 80% reliable is usually wrong when they report that the accident was caused by a blue cab. If blue cabs are just very uncommon. And uh, if you don't, if you don't have the history ready to hand, that's fine. But this uh, mm -hmm. thought experiment, I mean, it seems like it, it wouldn't have arisen out of nowhere. I mean, is this rooted in criminal justice history or is this just a, a mathematical thought experiment that happens to, you know, involve something like a detective show? Uh, this comes up a lot in talking about uh, whether we should trust medical tests. So let's just think about how what I just said about cabs can apply in another context involving medical tests. Suppose you have 
a test for a disease that's 90% reliable. Uh, and so uh, you, and, and maybe the disease in question is a, is a, a very lethal sort of disease, but, uh, but it can be treated. The treatment, however, suppose is also very harmful. Perhaps it, it causes blindness or something like that. And now let's suppose you take this test and uh, you're test positive and you're wondering whether to undergo the treatment and you're thinking to yourself, well, if I don't undergo the treatment, I'll die. If I do undergo the treatment, I'll, I'll go blind. Uh, and the test is 90% reliable. That, that seems to suggest that there's a nine out of 10 chance I have this disease. And so I, I, ought, to, I ought to take the, the treatment. But if the test uh, is 90% reliable, that means that 10% of the times it, it could be wrong. And now we have to think about the, the base rate of this disease in the population. If hardly anyone has this disease, then chances are that positive test result is, is wrong. Uh, here's, here's one way to think about it. Suppose that uh, the disease shows up in uh, one case out of 100,000. So we've got 100,000 people, suppose, and they all uh, take this test. Now the test is 90% reliable. So let's suppose that of these 100,000 people, 90,000 uh, test negative and 10,000 test positive. You with me so far? So far, so good. So far, so good. So we've got 100,000 people and our test says that, uh, that uh, 90,000 of them uh, don't have the disease, but because it's wrong 10% of the time, it says that 10,000 do have the disease, but the disease is actually present in only one of those 100,000 people. That's its frequency in this population. So this test is telling us that all these people have the disease when in fact, you know, these 10,000 people have the disease when only one of them does. So that's the case where, uh, Trusting the, the test leads to the wrong conclusion. Now, the general message from all this uh, is much easier to understand and uh, much more intuitive. Uh, we can forget about these numbers. The general moral from this, uh, this consideration is that the less plausible, or the less likely some event is, the better the evidence we require in order to be justified in believing it. So um, here's a, a simple story to get this point across. Suppose that you have a daughter who attends fourth grade and she's generally pretty reliable. So if your daughter comes home and says, uh, my friend Lisa had a birthday party in class today, we think, okay, uh, we can trust our, our, our daughter about that after all people have birthdays, there's nothing unusual about that. And if she comes home and says there was a fire drill in school today, we think, okay, uh, our daughter is uh, pretty reliable and uh, fire alarms are not that unusual, so we can trust her. Now, if she comes home and says uh, some extraterrestrials visited our school today and uh, they took us on their spaceship, this is uh, something we shouldn't 
I think, uh, believe. And our daughter is as reliable as ever. It just is the event on which she's reporting is so unlikely that we should doubt her. She's, we're, we're stipulating of a particular reliability, say 80% reliable on what she reports, but because what she's reporting in the case of the extraterrestrials is so unlikely to begin with, we shouldn't trust her, even though she's no less reliable than ever. All right. And this has, keep rolling. Okay. Keep rolling. So this has, yeah. So, so now when we start talking about conspiracy theories, we have to ask ourselves whether the theory being um, postulated is so unlikely that we should dismiss it, even though there might be some evidence in its favor. So when people talk about, um, oh, I mean, there's so many conspiracy theories we can, we can imagine, but take, take your favorite conspiracy theory. Maybe it's that, uh, that uh, the Democrats are ruled by uh, a ring of cannibalistic pedophiles, right? That's the, the QAnon theory. Well, this is pretty unlikely, I think. And given that it's so unlikely that the Democratic Party is, is ruled by a, a, a ring of demo, uh, pedophile cannibals, the evidence we should demand before believing it would be extraordinary. I would say that we'd, we'd require more evidence for believing that than we would for, say, believing that the Civil War occurred. And we don't have anything like that evidence. Uh, and so this, the, the point is that is the general point, again, is simply that the less likely something is, the more evidence we should demand before we're justified in believing it. All right. All right. I want to turn back to moral questions here for a moment uh, in uh, the chapter that begins to talk about, you know, when bad thinking becomes bad action or I, I forget the actual title of it. I apologize for that. Uh, okay. You give you you give three examples of thoughtless insistence on the particulars of rules, uh, and one of the things that I was wondering as I was reading that you know you label it as you know a a species within the genus that you call epistemic stubbornness. I think this one you call legalistic stubbornness or something like that. Um, my question to you is: I mean, uh, do you need to have some kind of appeal to a universal law like like Aristotle or Cicero or Martin Luther King Jr. would would posit in order to make sense of that stubbornness. In other words, I mean, you know, does a a wise decision to transcend the letter of the law assume that mm-hmm. there is some kind of law that transcends the written one? Mm. Yes. I think uh yeah, those are hard questions. The the second sort of stubbornness that Steve and I discuss we label normative stubbornness. Uh, That's what it is. Thank you. Sure, sure. Norms are just uh, principles that uh, tell you how you should behave. So we have a norm about uh, whether we should steal someone's wallet. And uh, of course, what the norm is, is no, you shouldn't steal some wallet. And the normative stubbornness that that Steve and I uh, are are, uh, frustrated with is this kind of insistence that one follow a rule, a law, 
even when it's clear that doing so uh, violates the intentions behind that rule or law. And we discuss a, a couple of cases. Perhaps the, the easiest case to think about is one where someone uh, walks into a, a liquor store and the person is of advanced age. Perhaps she's walking with a cane and she's got gray hair and it's obvious that she's 20, over 21 years old. And yet the proprietor of the store refuses to sell her any alcohol because she doesn't have her ID with her and, and they require an ID. This is a case of normative stubbornness in the, in the sense that the proprietor of the store is insisting uh, on following this rule, even though it's clear that the rule shouldn't be applied in this circumstance. Now, your question is, well, where do these rules come from? Uh, that, that is, uh, these- Or, I mean, whence the impetus to transcend the letter of the law? Does that imply yeah. some other, you know, some transcendent justice that draws us beyond what is written? It could, it could in some cases. I think uh, the case I just described, it's just a simple matter of the intention of the law is that we shouldn't be selling to minors. And here we have a case where we're, we're dealing with someone who's clearly not a minor. Now, where does this, uh, this law, this transcendent law come from that uh, minors shouldn't possess alcohol, perhaps? I don't. I don't think we have to think of that as transcendent in any sort of sense. We just recognize that alcohol is harmful and uh, it's in the interest of society that we not harm our youth. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, you know, the, the idea of harm to society, I mean, and, and I'm going to press this a little bit, but I mean, does sure. that not, does that not imply uh, some kind of idea of a healthy society towards which we're trying to orient ourselves yeah, yeah, I see where you're going. And I am comfortable with thinking that ultimately we do have these, these moral rules that have some kind of objective standing. Uh, so they're transcendent in the sense that it could be that uh, the truth of these rules is distinct from what anyone believes the truth of these rules to be. So uh, take a a pretty obvious moral law, you should not kill someone. And I, I'm comfortable with saying that that law is true, regardless of whether people accept it as true. So it's transcended in that sense. And then your next right. question is, well, what makes it true? <laughs> Uh, right. And, and again, I, probably, I, I realized as I press this, it, it's sounding like a, a theistic trap and I promise it's not. It's just, you know, is there a, a is there something beyond the sentiment? So, I mean, to go back to David yeah. Hume, I mean, David Hume would just stop there. He says we have a sentimental um, urge, if you will, uh, to preserve the life of, of other human beings. And that seems to be where David Hume wants to stop. Um, right. You know, I mean. I, I guess in, in my mind, I mean, I go to concrete historical moments that we have, you know, documentary uh, accounts of uh, in which people lose that sentimental mooring. But I would still want to say that they are wrong for losing that sentimental mooring. Does that yeah. make some sense? I'm, I'm completely on board with that. Uh, and I don't, I don't regard this as a, uh, 
as, as you uh, tacitly trying to move me toward a Christian worldview because. Okay, thank you. Because I, that's, I promise you that's not my intention here. Yeah, no, but I, I think, uh, and you probably are familiar with this, I think that, that Plato in his dialogue, the Euthyphro, gave us good reasons for thinking that these moral laws transcend even God's will. Yes, yes. And the biblical Psalms give us uh, indications of the same. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. They're constantly saying, God, you're not being just. Ah, okay. Yeah. How about that? Well, the last two chapters of this book uh, take a swing from the rudiments of logic and ethics as Aristotle lays them down to the praise of what you, following Plato's Socrates, call a philosophical life. We've mentioned this before in passing. I want to dwell on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because all of the graduation speakers I have ever heard sound <laughs> more like Plato's Callicles from the Gorgias, telling the 22-year-olds to go out and change the world, uh, rather than you know learning to live in harmony with the nature of things. How oh. can this Socratic call to a certain way of life relate to the crazy and even dangerous ideas that this book's cover warns against? Uh, that That's... That's a hard question. I, whenever we act, uh, we're acting on the basis of some sort of principle. Uh, and this, this fact is easy to lose sight of. But I, I, I think it just came up in our, in our earlier conversation when you were pressing me about uh, my, my claim that uh, people there should be a law against selling alcohol to youth because uh, we're interested in uh, preventing harm to, to children. And, and you pointed out quite correctly that this seems to be rooted in something deeper, namely a sense of responsibility to our community or an interest in having a healthy community. And I think that's absolutely right. But what you, what you did when you isolated this, this deeper principle is you you situated the, the rule against selling alcohol to youth to some deeper moral insight about the desire to preserve the health of the community. So principles are grounded in deeper principles, grounded in still deeper principles, I think. And what Socrates is urging us to do is not simply accept at face value that sort of first, or let's call it shallowest principle, but instead to to delve deeper until we come to a clear understanding of these sort of ultimate principles that we should be uh, investigating in order to, to ascertain the best forms of life that we can live. It's a hard thing to do, and it's something that takes time to do, Often decisions that we make don't uh, don't allow us the the opportunity to do the sort of deep dive into examination of principles that the examined life requires. But it's something that we should be willing to undergo, undertake on occasion, and certainly much more frequently than we in fact do. 
Very good. So, and I and and, and the the Caliphs reference, I, I I have to confess a little bit of history. I was preparing to teach the Gorgias on, uh, well, I mean, I was preparing to teach it later on in the month uh, on January 6, 2021. So I, I couldn't help but think this is a bunch of people whose high school graduation speakers told them to go change the world. And here they are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. But I'm, I'm also a, a grumpy old fart that way. So I, <laughs> I'll, I'll grant that uh, that's probably a function of my personality more than anything else. I want to talk about, yeah. about another dialogue, though, because I am forevermore going to teach the Euthyphro differently because of your reading of it. I like it so much. Um, oh, really? You reframe this dialogue in a fascinating way. Uh, you take the nature of piety or holiness or rightness, depending on how you want to translate that Greek noun, as a secondary matter in the Euthyphro, and you say that justified action is really the main focus. So in brief, summarize your reading of the Euthyphro and uh, show our listeners how the Euthyphro can and should inform our public lives. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Euthyphro is, is a dialogue that, that um, begins with Socrates showing up to court because Socrates has been charged with various crimes uh, among, among which were corrupting the youth and, and believing in false gods. Neither charge was in fact uh, an accurate charge. So Socrates was certainly not corrupting the youth and he was enlightening the youth. And uh, the charge of false gods I think was also trumped up because Socrates believed in a God. But anyway, Socrates is, is at court and uh, he finds himself in conversation with a man named Euthyphro who's also at court because he's charging his father with murder. Euthyphro's father had, uh, had uh, subdued a, a person who had murdered someone else. And uh, because he wanted him to uh, face justice, he had, he had tied him up and left him. Uh, uh, and while, while he had been left out in the cold or something like that tied up, he himself died. And so now here's Euthyphro coming to court to charge his father with, with murdering this, this murderer. And Socrates says to Euthyphro in this kind of uh, ironic way he has, ah, you must know quite a bit about justice if you think that you, you, you know that your, your father was in fact guilty of this crime. It's of course a significant thing to, to press charges against one's own father. And Euthyphro takes the, Brit, takes the bait and says, yes, Socrates, I know quite a bit about, about wisdom and about justice and about piety. And so they start this conversation and, and what happens is that Socrates makes a fool of Euthyphro uh, and exposes Euthyphro's ignorance of these issues about which he thought he was an expert. So uh, the, the basic idea here is that Socrates is, is reminding us that before we act, uh, we need to think very carefully about the limits of our own knowledge. It's a lesson in humility. Euthyphro is someone who thought he knew a lot and it turned out he didn't know anything. And here he is pressing various serious charges, charges that could lead to the execution of his own father on, on a very, on the basis of, of a, on the basis of misunderstanding of, of piety. Uh, and so many more of our actions, Socrates thought, are similarly rooted in 
an inadequate understanding of correct moral principles. So that that's the way that uh, Steve and I like to read the Euthyphro. Very good. I want to follow up on that a little bit because I can imagine a counter argument that says that uh, to refrain from prosecuting someone uh, who has committed murder uh, is a likewise grave omission uh, <laughs> so that the uh, you know, the act of bringing the father to trial is certainly serious, but it would have been just as serious not to do so. So, I mean, the the responsibility that, that connects knowledge and responsibility and action, I mean, how do they relate to each other? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right that uh, when, when faced with a, uh, oh, when faced with a circumstance like Euthyphro was, where he had to choose between prosecuting his father for murder or potentially allowing a murderer to 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 live without any consequences for for what he's done, uh, so either, either way that decision is made, there are going to be uh, uh, momentous momentous consequences. But Socrates' point is simply that given that our decisions, fortunately not too frequently, but frequently enough could have momentous consequences. We need to be very careful that we're, we're uh, acting on our best, our best understanding of the principles that, that should be guiding our behavior. Uh, so Socrates is imploring us to to think seriously and carefully about which principles should be guiding our behavior. And, and for Socrates, this kind of serious reflection comes about through, through dialogue with others in which we're constantly testing our ideas. Uh, the Socratic method is one in which someone puts forth a claim and then it's subject to test, to interrogation. And this means of uh, testing and interrogating is Socrates thought our best hope for identifying which of those moral principles are the correct ones. Very good. I want to talk for just a moment about a disturbing study that you cite in the conclusion of the book, one that finds that epistemic stubbornness, which is, you know, if you want to define that, because I, I realize now my notes completely skipped over that concept, uh, mm -hmm. but that epistemic stubbornness tends to increase rather than to decrease as formal education increases. Uh, so, you know, we are two PhDs talking to each other. That disturbs me a little bit. Uh, what was the methodology of that study and, and what are the implications for all of the, you know, philosophical recommendations that this book offers to a reader? Hmm. Um. I, I don't know the methodology of that study. I'm, uh, oh, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Let's get to the implications then. I mean, uh, what reasons do our listeners have to trust a couple PhDs talking about this? <laughs> well, uh, our, our, the subtitle of our book, uh, so our, the, the full title of our book is When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. And then the, the part after the, the implicit colon there is how philosophy can save us from ourselves. Uh, I think that uh, training in philosophy, and, and now let's distinguish 
philosophy from philosophers. Training in philosophy is the best way to ensure that the beliefs that we're embracing are well justified because philosophy is a discipline that focuses on rules for good thinking. Now, I want to distinguish philosophy from philosophers, though, uh, because philosophers are people like anyone else who are more or less adept at what philosophy has to teach. However, outside of philosophy, PhDs more generally, we might find people who are less familiar with what philosophy has to offer, the lessons philosophy has to teach us. And so it's no surprise that we find very well-educated people who might still not be very good at, at rules of thought. And I think that um, a danger in having a PhD is that it, it gives others the appearance that you're an expert and it gives, gives the possessor of the PhD, him or herself, a, uh, a sense of their own um, ability to think well. So this, this could lead obviously to, 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 to trouble. And one of the lessons that we take from Socrates is that uh, it's a very important, a very important virtue is epistemic humility. Socrates claimed that uh, the one that that the one thing that made him wiser than anyone else was his recognition of the fact that he knew nothing. Now, this is a, again, I think, a, a case of Socratic irony, but Socrates wanted us to appreciate that. Knowledge is a very hard thing to acquire and it doesn't come to anyone easily. So we should, we should approach, approach each other, approach principles, approach decisions from this perspective of humility, from this perspective that maybe more thought than we've put into this decision or maybe uh, more thought than we've given to the words of some person are, are required for us to really understand the situation at hand. So I want to follow up on that. I mean, so then how would you narrate the relationship between mm -hmm. this emphasis at the end of the book, which is a good emphasis on the humility that comes with philosophical reason, and then the emphasis at the beginning of the book on trusting evidence which is, you know, affirmed and accredited by experts. I mean, didn't Socrates end up drinking hemlock because he didn't trust experts? Uh, no, I don't think that's why he ended up drinking hemlock. All right, all right. So narrate it for me. That, that, that was my Columbo moment, by the way. <laughs> ah, that was your Columbo moment. Well, There's just something I'm just not getting here. <laughs> <laughs> well, do, do, do you want me to talk about the connections between the uh, parts of the book, or do you want me to talk about why why Socrates drank hemlock? Uh, connect the parts of the book first, and then we can get to the other part. Okay. So, uh, right, the, 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 the parts, so the second part of the book is an emphasis in part on this idea of epistemic humility, but epistemic humility is a, uh, a perspective one should take because it reveals and acknowledges this appreciation that, that decision-making, good decision-making is very hard to do. And in fact, 
uh, you can spend a long time deliberating and still end up making the wrong decision. And once we appreciate that, I think we become less dogmatic, uh, more open to the possibility that something we believe is wrong. Uh, I, I can think of, and I'm sure you can think as well of, of people who insist that they're never wrong or are positive that they've always got it right. Certainly, certainly. Okay. Now, so that's, that's the emphasis in the second part of the, the book. Now, the first part of the book explains and uh, details how one should go about posing problems, presenting reasons for answers to these problems, evaluating evidence. So the, the first part highlights the kinds of tools that the epistemically humble person must bring to bear in their decision-making. So I don't, I don't see there's a, a disconnect at all between those two parts of the book. All right, all right. I want to give you a chance, just because my listeners will email me if I don't, uh, mm -hmm. to answer the too easy criticism here at the end of our talk. And here's that criticism, that consistently throughout the book, the crazy ideas that you point to, people usually generally associate with Republicans rather than Democrats. And when you do try to grant that Democrats also need a, a good dose of philosophical thinking, uh, when you try to, you know, give examples of that, it sounds something like a job interview answer. You know, sometimes they just love justice too much. Sometimes they just love the people around them too much. Um, so, I mean, you know, what keeps this book from being merely an iteration of partisan self-congratulation? Or if it is just that, why do readers <laughs> need such a book? Yeah, um, it, it is true that uh, Steve and I, Steve and I, came together on this project uh, in part because of the kinds of things going on in the world that were very closely connected with Trump. Uh, so associated with Trump was, for whatever reason, a uh, dismissal of the, the efficacy of COVID vaccines, a uh, dismissal of the, um, the urgency of, of climate change, uh, a, a, an insurrection at the Capitol, which tried to overthrow a democratically elected president. So these were the issues that were getting us hot and bothered. And they happened to take place during a Republican administration and I think they happen to be uh, inspired in large part because of things Trump did and, and, and said. And so those were our, our targets. But you're absolutely right that Democrats are no less guilty of instances of bad thinking than Republicans are, just as at the time Democrats, at the time we wrote this book, Democrats weren't in power. And so their, their, their bad thinking wasn't, uh, wasn't leading to the harms that 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 the uh, people leading the governments were. Now, if you want instances, examples of, of bad thinking among Democrats, I think um, I think there's something to this idea of, of of wokeness, which is harmful to society. What we're we're seeing among uh, some people who label themselves as progressives is a uh, refusal to, to listen 
to what others have to say. So I, I deplore this, this activism on campus that is preventing speakers with opposing views from, from visiting and, and giving talks. I think that's wrong. Uh, I think um, um, I think there's a lot of blame to be put on this this attitude that that uh, there's only one one correct viewpoint, and we're unwilling to listen to those who disagree with us. I don't I don't know if that's enough to, to satisfy. Oh no no, your no that's fine no no lie and again you know I I, I think the tendency I mean. And, and I've, I've encountered this in books from other authors I've interviewed who have more of a conservative bent is that their examples of sloppy thinking in public life always come from Hollywood and the university campus. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, uh, you know, when the when the partisan coin gets flipped, all the bad examples come from Trump voters. And I always yeah. think, OK, I mean, can, can we. You know, uh, can we talk about it a little bit more? Abst- I mean, I don't even, I don't even know if abstract would be the right way to go about it, but that, that's Neutrally, what occurs to me. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no, no. I th- I, th- I think you've you've addressed that well. well. Larry, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. I was gonna. I'm just looking at the snow falling outside my window right now, and and mm-hmm. uh, thinking how. Talking to you has uh, kept my mind off of the dismal weather here. <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, Larry, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about America's epistemological woes, the philosophical life, or whatever else as we head for the door? Uh-huh. Well, um, what, what, I would, what I would like is... Uh, for, for people to be, uh, the, the, the emphasis on our book is on the importance of, of reflection, the avoidance of knee-jerk opinions, and uh, the significance of, of philosophy, the importance of philosophy in uh, our everyday lives. So if, if people could take the time to pick up an introduction of philosophy textbook and to ask their school systems to start teaching philosophy in, in, in high school and middle school. Philosophy is even being taught in some school systems and at the elementary level. I think the world would be a better place. So this is a, a plug for philosophy. Larry Shapiro, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for the great questions, Nathan. You are, you are really super prepared for this interview, which made it a lot of fun for me. I thank you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in and for listening in on our conversation. The book is When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, How Philosophy Can Save Us from Ourselves from Princeton University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.